Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And then after the doctor was done with the examination, Kenan came down into the well of the courtroom and took his mother home. And I told the jury that Mrs. Hecko will wait for your decision in this case. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. Um, the puppy update you didn't ask for. I, um, I did. I was going to. You didn't okay. have a chance. She turns into an absolute gremlin demon dog from 6 to 8 p.m. I don't know right. if I said that last time, but she's sweet all day. And then from 6 to 8, I'm like, what have I done? She bit, bite, she bit a hole through my jeans. Oh, my goodness. During a client Zoom uh, like status update. Um, so I was like trying to stay calm from like, you know, desk level up and then underneath I but I was like grimacing in pain while she was like biting my ankles and so. you got a bottle of wine? <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um yeah. well very good hey you know one other thing that we need to update everybody else on is I don't think we've told but uh Raz is uh gonna be going to law school so uh we are yep, excited yep. for Raz yeah I'm excited I'm nervous and uh thank you guys for all your help and support so far and, and I expect, Raz, when you when you do go to law school, the first thing you'll talk about in your first class is, you know, this great podcast that everybody can listen to. <laughs> That's right. Oh, God. Please. I told Raz he looked like an inside linebacker. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> he's, a, he's a renaissance man. That's right. Well, That's right. Well, Raz, you'll have to let us know how it goes, because since we did an episode about should Raz go to law school, we'll have to do some follow ups about, uh, you know, how it goes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and then I'll tell you it's all a hoax that I've been lying this whole time. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right, exactly. We'll decide whether to post the episodes at a later date. That's right, that's right. <laughs> well, uh, well, let's uh, let's not waste any more time introducing our. Uh, we have a we have just a tremendous guest today, a fantastic trial lawyer from Arvada, Colorado, Jim Gilbert uh, from the Gilbert Law Group. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm doing perfect. Um, it, What's that? Good seeing you guys. It you is great. It is great seeing you. For the first time. Yes. <laughs> it, it is. It has been a. It's been a long time since I think we've uh, we've seen each other in person. But uh, it is. It is great to see you and great. To, great to hear from you. And I can't wait to talk about this case. So I wanted to let everybody know, I mean, so we're going to talk about Jim and who Jim is so we can all look him up. But um, I before. So I've known Jim quite a while and we're in some of the same groups together. And he's uh, uh, been such a great mentor. I even remember uh, before one of my first big products cases going out to Arvada and, and sitting around at his conference table and talking about how to try rollover cases against Ford. Uh, for their explorers and then going out to Jim's beautiful house and uh, and had just a great time and, and really uh, just learned a lot that helped us in that trial, which we uh, which we won in. But um, but before uh, before we did that um, or before I even met Jim, I knew of Jim because when I first I think I was in my first year of practice and I um, had started working on a uh, product liability case involving the uh, Suzu Trooper. And um, and my uh, boss at the time, uh, Jim Carter, uh, great trial lawyer down here in Georgia, uh, he handed me a book and he said, 
read this book. It's your Bible. And it's a book called Full Disclosure written by Jim and his, and his partners. Uh, I mean, a, a while ago, because I've been practicing for a while, but that book was my Bible when it came to uh, discovery issues in products cases and really every case, but uh, especially in products cases. So uh, I, I never got to tell you that, Jim, how much that book uh, helped me out, especially in the early years, teaching me, you know, all the, the, uh, you know, things to watch out for and the arguments to be made when you're uh, battling through discovery issues with uh, with the defendants. I'm honored by your words, Steve. I, I, I will tell you, my, I, have, I do have a funny story about that is uh, my that first case, um, you know, and, and I really hadn't even written, a, you know, what we call in Georgia, a good faith letter where you're trying to work out your discovery issues. And uh, and so I, I remember, you know, Jim asked me to write a good faith letter. I go through your book. I'm doing all the case all research. And I wrote a 54 page uh, good faith letter to the defense. <laughs> and, I, and I remember the defense lawyer calling me up from King and Spalding. He said, Steve, what do you want me to do with this? <laughs> 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 I love that story. And I just want to um, also mention, Steve, that that full disclosure, that's something that we have. It's kind of like our assigned reading for new for new associates at the firm who are kind of new to um, our side of of discovery um, things. That's sort of how we educate them, get them prepped on. So thank yep. you, Jim. Absolutely. You're welcome. We, we give it to every new associate at the firm, like read this, know it, you know. You have to do research after that, but this gives you the good that gives you the basis, you know. So, uh, so the, we uh, we owe Jim a lot, and, uh, and and thank you for sharing your knowledge over the years. Um, but let me so let me tell what else you can also look up Jim at his law firm, the Law Group, uh, the the Gilbert Law Group. I said I totally the Law Group. That's it. He's the, got the, the website GilbertLawGroup.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and as I said, Jim is based out of Arvada and, and uh, near Denver, Colorado, and uh, has just done so much great work as a trial lawyer all over the country. Uh, Jim is a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates. Uh, he was named as the uh, 2019 Lawyer of the Year. Uh, he was uh, one of his cases was in Lawyers Weekly uh, as a personal injury cases that make a difference, which was a six point one million dollar verdict against a windshield installer. Um, he is a fellow in the Society of Trial Lawyers, a fellow in the International Society of Barristers, uh, named as one of the top 100 uh, uh, lawyers in the country by National Trial Lawyer Organization and has been named in Best Lawyers in, Amer in America every year since 2011 through the present um, and uh, obviously a super lawyer and all of the accolades, a uh, fantastic lawyer. And uh, in addition to just being a great lawyer, Jim is also a race car driver. So uh, when it, when it comes to talking with the, uh, with the accident reconstructions about how, how a car handles Jim, uh, Jim speaks from knowledge. You know what they called me around the tracks in America? <laughs> I did racing. What, what's that? They called me fast Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> Because I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's one, one of those ironic nicknames. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, Jim, I mean, it's so good to have you on the show. And um, I can't wait to talk about this case, uh, which was a case that you tried uh, back in 2013 in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Uh, I think it's called Chittenden County. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, yeah. And uh, and your client was Jamila Hecko, and the defendant was Johnson Controls Inc. Uh, and Jamila was and a, a uh, what's Chrysler that? Settled. Chrysler okay. settled after four trials. 
Right, right. Yeah. So the trial itself was against just Johnson Controls, Inc. Is that right? Yeah, seat makers. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this case involved a uh, 2000 Dodge Neon that Jamila was driving and waiting to make a left-hand turn uh, when the vehicle behind her, which I think was a, a Buick Alero, uh, the young woman driving that car fell asleep, I believe, and rear-ended uh, Jamila um, at a little bit around 40 miles an hour, maybe a little bit over 40 miles an hour. Uh, and Jamila's uh, seat back uh, collapsed uh, due to the fact that it basically had one uh, one-sided recliner on it instead of dual recliners on it. And we'll talk a lot about that. Uh, and she, her uh, head uh, went into the seat behind her uh, and she had a, um, a, frag- a cervical spine fracture at C4, C5, and it rendered her a uh, quadriplegic. Um, and un- I mean, obviously that's a, a, a terrible injury, but in addition to that, she didn't have any insurance. And so uh, from 2007 till about two, uh, maybe at least through 2013, um, her main caregivers were her two sons, uh, Kenan and Amir, um, you know, which uh, and, and Jim's going to talk a lot about this, because from my understanding, this family is uh, just a tremendous family. And there's, uh, you know, just their whole story of how they came to America. And then, you know, the commitment that these sons made in caring for their mother uh, after she had this uh, this uh, tragic accident. Um, is just really heartwarming and is certainly one of the parts that uh, that, that was uh, significant in driving uh, the tremendous verdict that, that Jim and his uh, and his co-counsel got up in Burlington, Vermont, which was a, uh, a total of forty three point two or right right about forty three point two million dollars. Uh, oh, point five. Okay, okay, I, my math was off. <laughs> <I thought. laughs> Don't cheat me out of three. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, just a just a great work. And, and you know, and I, there's a lot to talk about here. Not only the fact of, you know, how the damages uh, were presented and the story of this family, but, you know, Jim's decision to essentially proceed uh, mainly against Johnson Controls, uh, because this all it, it, Probably most people will remember this, but product liability lawyers certainly remember this. This was a 2007 collision. Uh, in 2008-2009, Chrysler declares bankruptcy, uh, and so that affects you know a lot of those cases that were that were pending before. Um, and so that uh, I know certainly came into play in this case. Um, you know, and then and so uh, and so Jim made the decision to go against uh, Johnson Controls, which was the seat manufacturer. Uh, for their design of the seat. And um, I, we'll, we'll talk about all this, but I'm sure Johnson Controls uh, defense was something along the lines of, well, we just made what they, what Chrysler told us to make. And, uh, you know, that's not our issue, but sounds like the evidence was different. How did that work out in Nuremberg? <laughs> right. That's right. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> Well, Jim, you want to talk about um, let, let's talk a little bit about this the decision to, you know, to uh, mainly go uh, against J- Johnson Controls in light of, you know, what Chrysler had gone through and, and you know, where you were in the case. Yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting uh, way we made the decision. Chrysler went bankrupt in 2009. So, you know, they're out of the picture at that point. Well, now we have a local Burlington Dodge dealer that we could sue. But, you know, when you think of the jurors and picking a jury and stuff like that, 
who's going to get really angry at the local Dodge dealer that sponsors the softball teams in town. And right. so we made a decision to go after the seat because that was the thing that was defective and uh, caused her to go into the backseat and, and caused her paraplegia. But the story of the trial, and this is important, was really driven by what happened on the other side of the world. Yeah. And our trial started on the anniversary date of the killing death of her husband and the father of these two little boys while he was defending his village outside Sarajevo against the Serbs. He was shot in the head and killed. And it didn't take long for Jamila Heko to realize her sons were next. Yeah. Made a decision then to take those two little boys and she found a tunnel underneath the airport in Sarajevo, got through this waterlogged and water-filled tunnel, got to the other side, and then this is the mountain range that goes from Sarajevo up and then into Croatia. She took those little boys out of that tunnel, just with the shirts on their back, climbed up the mountain range, and went down into Croatia. And some of the jurors after trial said, that that story made them think about the sound of music, mm -hmm. trying to escape the Nazis. She got into Croatia and began taking jobs, cleaning houses. And then her sister sent her some money so she could come to the United States. And when she got to the United States, she had a choice of going to any one of the 50 states hundreds and hundreds of towns and cities. She moved to Burlington, Vermont. That's where she wanted the community where she could raise her two little, uh, two little boys. And ultimately that became kind of a trial story. And we began to emphasize starting in jury selection throughout the trial and in closing argument, the importance of community and families, because that's what drives these verdicts. It's not, you know, the, the uh, uh, intricate design of a, of a seat or a recliner. It's the backstory. It's the story of the community. And when she was paralyzed in this case, the community got together in the farmer's market square of Burlington and raised money for this family in order to, from bake sales, in order to provide some income. And she was at the Spalding Rehabilitation Clinic in, in Boston, and she was told that she needed to go into a long-term care facility. And they found a care facility for her near her home in Burlington. Her sons, who at that time were in their late teens, went into that care facility and said, uh-uh, our mother doesn't go into a care facility. We are going to take care of our mother. And ultimately, those boys became the caretaker throughout the rest of, her, uh, of her, their mother's life. 
and doing everything for her, including cleaning the house, feeding her, toileting her, everything you can imagine that two, two boys would do for a mother because they remembered them being taken by their mother into Croatia and the United States. And they told themselves they are not going to let their mother go into a long care nursing home. And so that became the story of the community that backed uh, this family. And that word community stayed with us throughout the trial where the community in my jury selection, I emphasized that the community gets to decide what's safe enough or not safe enough for the community. And that's important because it made everything feel real important to the family and where she lived and the fact that she could have chosen any place, but she chose Burlington, Vermont, and they accepted her and they embraced her. And uh, that became kind of a story throughout jury selection. And then I could, as we get through yeah. some of the uh, program here, I can tell you some of the things we did in the trial. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that uh, I mean, that story of them coming, you know, going in these tunnels under the airport, which I understood from reading in the closing, <clears throat> those tunnels would get flooded a lot. And there would, uh, yeah. and people would die going through those tunnels. Uh, and and so she, you know, uh, basically had to put her life at risk with her with her boys just to get them out of that country because she, she was in such a dangerous situation. But um, you know, just a, a harrowing story that, um, you know, is, is just, uh, tells so much about this family and, and, and what type of people they are. Yeah. Um, uh, Jim, I just wanted to touch on real quickly that, that in addition to the family, um, being an important part of the story, um, that you carried through the case that the family story, um, you had mentioned in the materials that you had sent to us about the case that, that, that meeting this family is also what really um, is what made you take the case that you weren't yeah. necessarily inclined to, but it was, it was your, once you met them, you had completely changed your yeah, mind. That's a, that's a real, real good point for people to keep in mind when you're thinking about try, taking a case or not taking a case. This case was given to about three national law firms who turned it down because it just seemed like a difficult case given how the accident happened, et cetera. But I walked into that home and I walked into the living room, very sparse living uh, conditions where those boys had a bed set up for their mother in the living room. And as I started to talk to the boys, I thought to myself, I'm taking this case. Mm -hmm. uh, this family, is going to get their shot in court and they're going to be able to tell a jury of their uh, community that what happened to them is not right. And, mm -hmm. and if there is responsibility, someone needs to stand up and take responsibility for it. 
So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization. It's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. And one of the the, uh, great parts of the story was that I think it was Kenan was actually planning to go uh, get his master's in business degree and actually uh, gave that up so that he could stay home and care for his mother. Um, So yeah, just a, just a tremendous story. Uh, uh, for this obviously very close family. Um, you know, so in, in reading this, and I should mention, Jim, so you tried this with, uh, with, with Bob Langdon, who has also been a guest on the show uh, 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 previously. And so, uh, so Bob's another great lawyer from Langdon and Emerson out in, uh, out in, uh, um, in Missouri. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the sounds like to me, as I was reading sort of the, uh, opening and closing that everything, as far as how the evidence came in, all of the defenses that the, that, uh, Johnson controls wanted to use, it sounded like a, the majority of those ended up backfiring on them. Um, for, for, for instance, like, like things like, uh, you know, you had a, a patent that Johnson controls had written, I think in 1988 or had filed in ni- 1998, sorry. Um, that showed that they thought that a dual recliner was a better type of recliner in because single recliners, which was the type of recliner in this one, would uh, were known to have the seat fail and to twist and then allow the occupant to get out. Um, right. And so, it, it, and things like that. And then, of course, the way you guys uh, handled their expert witnesses, which um, just seemed, uh, you know, all of these extremely high-paid uh you know, very seasoned experts uh, just look like uh, people coming and trying to make up stories to uh, to protect uh, Johnson controls. But wait till they get on the stand and have to answer the tough questions. Let me let me tell you something that was really pretty rich. One of their main defenses is that our seat back, our seat in this 
uh, Chrysler Dodge Neon met or exceeded all federal motor vehicle safety standards. And there's a way they test those automotive seats to make sure they're strong enough so that they don't go back and allow someone to pocket their head against the rear seat. So what we did was we went down and got us a lawn chair at uh, Walmart and we created a video where we tested that lawn chair the way that the industry tests their seats. That lawn chair passed. <laughs> and on examination of their engineer, I asked him whether or not they would put a lawn chair in one of these vehicles. You know what his response was? If Chrysler told us to do it, we would do it. If that's what <laughs> we would do it. And the question you ask that comes to mind is, how did that work out in Nuremberg? Right, right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that's one of those strategies, um, Jim, that I think is so is so brilliant that that one of the many things that I think that that you can learn from in this trial is that idea that if you can get, you know, an expert or a defendant to commit to some sort, take some sort of line, um, how you can manipulate that against them. You know, I think it takes, um, you know, that's not necessarily how, how my brain works. And so seeing the way that you were creative about the lawn chair and that you, that you followed that through. Cause I remember like the first products case I ever worked on, um, it was a similar case where it was a roof crush case where they had met federal standards. They had passed the test. And as a new baby lawyer, I was like, Oh no, what do we do? That sounds very persuasive, you know? Um, and, and it's the work, um, that, that you and others have done to, to, to help, paint the picture of why that can be absurd or why that can mean nothing that you, and you were so successful with that in this case and with this jury. Um, and I just, I just love that. I love the lawn chair thing, but it's just so funny that a simple idea like that can take what seems like a very difficult, um, defense, which is that it met federal testing and, and, and just kind of make it totally work for you. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, give lectures at law schools and elsewhere in the country. And I often ask, well, just about all the time, ask lawyers in the audience, what's the hardest part of the trial for you? And about 90% of lawyers say it's jury selection. That's the hardest part of the trial. And my response is that jury selection should be absolutely the easiest part of any trial you ever take on. And do you know what the worst preparation I had for picking a jury? In this uh, case or otherwise? <laughs> in any case. Yeah, right. Because in law yeah. school, we're taught to talk. We aren't taught to listen. And a lawyer, if they're going to try a case, needs to be able to listen. And uh, it's like I, I give an example. Who's your favorite grandma? Who's your favorite bartender? It's the one who will listen non-judgmentally. And if you get people talking and you listen, and sometimes I'll look at the transcript of Vordier, a jury selection, and I'll see that 90% of it is the lawyer talking. Man. 
bad, bad deal. Yeah. That 90% of it needs to be the jurors talking. So the first five minutes of jury selection, I call the awkward five minutes. And I like to tell jurors that, and jury selection is not something for lawyers. It's a conversation you have with people box in front of you. And when you walk in, you know, nine out of 12 of them hate you and you hate them, but you've got to deal with it. So you, you tell them that I'm going to give you a test and I guarantee that during your jury selection, you'll get 100% on your test so long as you tell your truth. And uh, so one of the things that I did, uh, we always try and scout out the potential jurors who are going to try your case. I had a local counsel uh, in my case, and bef about four days before trial, we got a list of 165 jurors. He knew he was a born and raised in Burlington, Vermont. He knew two of them. Mm. And I thought, my God, is this the guy I want for my jury consultant to give me a hint, give me a line on these jurors? So there's a, there was a bar and restaurant that we would go to before trial. And I became kind of good friends with the bartender, Ian Delorme. And after talking to Ian and I showed him a list of the 165 jurors, he knew at least 50 or 60 of them personally. He knew who was smoking weed. He knew where they got their weed. He knew what tats they had in their arm or back <laughs> and when they got them and stuff like that. So I had, I didn't have a fancy neuroscientific jury consultant. I had my bartender. He came into the courtroom with me on the day of jury selection. And I told our jury consultant to go back to Miami. I'd handle it myself. So I had Ian sit up with me and these jurors would come in and he'd lean over and say, Jimmy, you don't want that one. Or he'd lean over and say, Jimmy, this is a good, gonna be a good juror for you. So we ended up with at least three or four jurors in the case that we would not have picked but for the advice I got from my jury consultant. <laughs> it sounds right out like right out of a movie, doesn't it? That, yeah. you know, like it would be perfect part of a movie. And you know, in a, in a big city, you may not have a bar or a bartender who knows that no, no one's going to know everyone in Chicago or anything like that. So what you got to do is hire a taxi driver. Taxi driver knows all the parts of the city and he knows what goes on in those parts of the city. And uh, uh, he can give you some good input. Another thing I like to do is I like the jurors to think that they're what they're doing is really important. So I, I read them a quote from the second president of the United States, John Adams. And this is a quote he gave in 1774. And this expresses, and I do it in jury selection. Some lawyers will wait until closing argument 
way too late. You have to define the importance of jury selection early, early, early. John Adams said, and I quote, representative government and trial by jury are the heart and lungs of liberty. Without them, we have no other fortification against being ridden like horses, fleeced like sheep, worked like cattle, and fed and clothed like swine and hounds. And that's a very good quote, and it gets the jury thinking that they're about to embark on something that's important. Who for? The community and for this family, where they learn the backstory of this family. Absolutely. But I, I mean, the, the uh, important takeaway for me from that is, you know, definitely go to the bar and get to know your bartender. So. <laughs> At about six o'clock when the dog starts, starts climbing, well, sorry, I've got to get down to the bar. I, I need to dip into a bit. Yeah, and and you got to meet with your jury consultant. So uh, you know, <laughs> I I wonder when you uh, when you had the the uh, when you had uh, Mr. Delorean come with you to um, to jury selection. Could you tell from any of the jurors that they recognized him? Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and they knew where he was sitting. <laughs> right. 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 He was sitting right next to Fast Jimmy. That's right. <laughs> Jim, I just want to touch on since we did just, um, you know, talk about jury selection and you mentioned that law school doesn't really prepare you for it at all. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that that maybe people respond that way, that it's what they think is the most difficult is because it does feel so important and so intimidating. You know, you sort of get this one shot at it. And so as new lawyers, it feels like there's so much riding on it. I think, you know, for me, I've never done it, but I think I'd be really, really nervous to do it. Um, <laughs> so, so what's your advice to, to somebody who's never done it before? Um, and you know, it's their time, it's their chance to do it. This is what I, what I tell people in addition to some of the other stuff. But jury selection, forget about using the words jury selection and coming in with it five pages of notes. Jury selection is a conversation about people whom you've never met before. So start the conversation and listen. Don't talk, listen. You don't need notes for jury selection. And you can go through all of the issues that you want to cover and for example, things that I like to, you know, I knew in my case, we would have some dishonesty working on us uh, because I had taken some depositions of key engineers for the defense and outside experts. So I like to ask each of the jurors, what are the two most important things your parents taught you? Or if the jurors have kids, what are the two most important things you like your children to learn from you? And probably 65% of those responses are honesty. Yeah. Being honest. So my paralegal is sitting with me at council table. He or she, she 
Lindsay, will know, will be able to write down, Yvonne Godfrey said honesty was one of the things she really makes sure her children's learn. So then in closing argument, when I recap some of the evidence, I look around the jury panel, I stare anyone directly in the eye because that would get uncomfortable. But if Yvonne told me that honesty is one of the best things or one of the two most important things, I look around and I said, one of you told me the other day, a couple of weeks ago, that honesty was the key thing you wanted your children to learn. What have we learned here? What have we learned from these expert witnesses' mm -hmm. defense? You know, and then I turn sometimes and I'll look at the defense table and I will just kind of gently raise my hand and say, you know, there are some people in this room who know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. Mm -hmm. And so we get we get all of the issues out about costs, but costs aren't what the jury really needs to think of. It's the value. What is the value of this woman to her children that she takes out of war-torn Bosnia? That value, it had nothing to do with cost. One thing I'm wondering about in, during jury selection, you I, I forgot to mention that you had a life care plan that I think was around twenty six million dollars um, yeah, or two. OK, two life care plans. We had a single recliner life care plan oh, right. of ten million. Then we had a dual or double life care plan of about twenty five. I, I do remember that reference in there about don't give her the single the single recliner life care plan. This family is not interested in a single recliner life care plan. They already got one of them from the defendant. They want the life care plan that's a dual uh, recliner life care plan, and they're entitled to it. Uh, so, so Jim, what I wanted to ask you is. Um, that life care plan, did you bring that up in um, in in uh, jury selection to tell the jury what kind of damages you were going to be seeking at the end of the case? Yeah, and you've brought up what's what's called anchoring. And anchoring is really an important part of uh, what we do in jury selection. And anchoring is simply giving a large number to the jury so that that's something they think about when they think about the value, not cost, but value of what's a life care plan and the non-economic damages. And studies have been done, uh, for example, I was reading a study earlier this week that uh, where two groups were told that the cost of this textbook is over $7,000. And another group wasn't told that, but the group that was told that this textbook cost $7,000, they gave a much, much higher verdict. These are absurd examples. Another absurd example is where you have two groups and you tell them that the temperature in San Francisco is 558 degrees Fahrenheit. Totally ridiculous. Right. But you do it to that group who 
who hears that and then you do it to a group, a control group who hasn't heard the 558, the people who hear the 558 almost always value something like a life care plan at a higher amount than the people who don't. That's the value of anchoring. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them and uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah and I mean LTS I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we're on a first name basis (laughs) you know my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Not only during jury selection, so you can find out if there's any uh, jurors who you know are just immediately uh, turned off by that. Uh, but then mention it again in opening, mention it again in closing, but just keep coming yeah. back to that. So that the, especially so that at the end of the case, the jury's not uh, surprised or shocked by what you're asking for. Uh, you have to prepare them for it. You have to prepare them. And um, you, you, you have to be, you have to be confident. If the jury thinks this is not a confident statement of value, they're going to start to question you. Yeah. You can't shy away just because, you know, you're afraid to say something. Well, 
I wonder if this is going to be too high or whatever. It, it, it's not going to be too high unless you make it too high because you're stupid. So it's going to be too high, but you've got to be able to anchor with confidence. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, you know, that comes back to something we talk about a lot is, you know, credibility. Um, you know, if you're the credible party, which you always should be, or else you're not going to win, um, you know, then you'll say things with confidence because if you're credible, you're confident. And, and the same goes with uh, being passionate for your client. So, um, but yeah, if, once you're, once you've established credibility and that you're the credible of the two parties in the, in the courtroom, um, yeah, then you can ask for what you've told the jury you're going to ask for and you ask for it confidently because that's what the case is worth. That's what the value is. So, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Steve. Uh, well, I was, I wanted to ask a little bit cause we haven't talked that much about the defect here and uh, and you, you guys did a, a, a lot of really good work that I want to make sure that we, that we mentioned one is, it, as we said that this, uh, the, um, Dodge neon came with a single recliner. Yep. And from what I understand that you had testimony from Chrysler where Chrysler had said the way it was designed was in Johnson controls. Like they, they came up with the design, you know, basically Chrysler said, we need a seat. Johnson controls came up with the design. They designed it. Um, and then, but they, that their first design that they had suggested to Chrysler was a dual recliner design. Um, which, you know, essentially puts the uh, teeth, you know, the way that the recliners work is you have these teeth that lock in. And if you have teeth on both sides, it makes your seat much stronger uh, and makes it so that it won't uh, deflect to one side. Um, but what I understand is you had uh, an expert that I've used several times, Lou Delario um, up from up in uh, uh, Arca, that he took the actual recliner that was in the um, Dodge Neon and he basically sound like what he did is split it in half and then put it on both sides of the seat. And it increased the, um, uh, the strength of it from, I think it was 8,000 inch pounds up to like 22,000 inch pounds. Is that right? Well, we discovered during, uh, uh, during depositions before trial that there's a little bit of cheating going on. Now, this gets back to my conversation with Yvonne. There's a little cheating going on. They started to show us some computer runs where with this very high speed, rear, rear end high speed additions, the dummy wouldn't come out of the seat. So they said, hey, there's nothing wrong with this seat. So we started looking at their computer runs and we found that what they had done is they stiffened the legs so that the ankles of the dummy would catch the seat and prevent the dummy from coming out of the seat. So what I did was I hired a computer uh, finite element. You know, I don't want to get too technical. <laughs> a computer guy. Right. Like, <laughs> who who like could the, run that the same test? Right. It's like the, what is that? That the geek, uh, geeks. That's right. I went to the geek squad of all computer guys. And he found this, this thing. So what he did was he went in and change the dummy so that the uh, feet would not catch the underneath of the seat. And then we could see what the dummy really did at these speeds. And sure enough, the dummy goes right into the back seat, pockets the head in the back and breaks the neck. 
Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand this when we're talking about seatback cases. One is, is that uh, generally your seat belt is not there to protect you in a rear end collision. Um, and that uh, two, I think, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think uh, at least one of the facts in your case was that, uh, that Jamila was not wearing her seatbelt, or at least that yes. would have been the evidence. And there talk was, about how- There was how evidence you, both ways. Okay. Well, talk, talk about how you handled both of those, you know, the fact that she possibly was not wearing her seatbelt. And then also about just describing, you know, when you're in a rear end collision, what is your protection in the vehicle? Well, a lot of that, or just about all of it, comes down to uh, credibility. And one of the things that I did during the trial, we had the doctor, rehab doctor from Spalding Institute in Boston, come to the courthouse to testify. But before I did that, I announced to the judge that I was going to call Jamila Hecko as my next witness. She was out in the, the corridor outside the courtroom. And the judge said, please bring her in. And I said, no, I'm not gonna bring her in until the jury is seated. So he calls the jury in, they get seated. Then I stand up and tell the, tell the court, our next witness will be Mrs. Hecko. Kenan Hecko, her son, one of the little boys, wheels his mom in down the ramp through the courtroom into the well of the courtroom. And I had him bring Jamila, his mom, in her wheelchair. And I had him roll her right up to the jury, just a foot or two from the jury. Now, she couldn't look each way, but they could see her and their heads cranked and cricked and looked at her so they could hear her because she was not able to talk real loudly. And she told them the whole story and said that she was wearing her seatbelt at the time of this collision. And that's something that this jury believed because of her credibility. Then what I did was while she's still in the courtroom, in the well of the uh, courtroom, I called the rehab specialist from Spalding to testify, and I had him in front of the jury, just a few feet away from the jury, perform an examination on Jamila. I wanted, I wanted everyone in that courtroom, especially the jury, to ignore the defense, ignore me, ignore everyone, and focus exclusively on Jamila Hecko during this examination. And then after the doctor was done with the examination, Kenan came down into the well of the courtroom and took his mother home. And I told the jury that Mrs. Hecko will wait for your decision in this case. She was our last witness. And I said, she will wait at home for your decision. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, you know, uh, so powerful when you do it that way. Um, one of the other defenses that JCI used in this case was to bring in an expert to testify that she was out of position, um, wasn't, wasn't sitting in the seat right. And I know you've got a story to tell about 
uh, that particular expert in including um, including doing the uh, the jury views of the vehicles. Uh, talk a little bit about how you handled this expert who was going to say that she wasn't sitting in the, the seat in the correct way. This expert made charge a total of $250,000, quarter of a million dollars to do the work defending this seat back for Johnson Controls. She spent three weeks closeted with the defense lawyers in a hotel in Burlington, Vermont, ginning up her testimony, getting her testimony ready uh, for trial. Not, and, and in the meantime, we had transported the vehicle to the courthouse. What's in the parking lot of the courthouse, the jury and the, and the judge had all seen that vehicle at least three times during that trial. This witness who walked into the courtroom the morning of her testimony, I mean, dressed to the nines with uh, uh, the most expensive handbag, I think it's Balenciaga or something, most expensive handbag you can get, dressed to the nines with a super uh, chic suit, and she got up and took the stand, and I said, why don't, you, why don't you share with the jury how many times you've seen this vehicle? She said, I've never seen it. And I said, doctor, do you realize that everyone in this courtroom has seen that vehicle at least three times, and you haven't seen it once? And she said, no, I mean, I, I guess I didn't know that. And I said, can you tell the jury, can you give the jury any explanation for why you'd spend three weeks in a hotel with the lawyers and not once make an effort to go look at the seat and the vehicle? And she had no explanation. And something else that I did that I think is really important for people trying these cases to realize when you've got a smoking gun document don't ask questions about it. Don't you read the bad parts of the document to the expert, which was this woman, uh, this biomechanical uh, doctor. Make her read it. Mm -hmm. She will gag on those words. And she had to read that her testimony and her bonuses were based upon her value as a testifier. And she wanted to gag when she had to read that document to the jury. Was that, was that in a uh, contract that you had? What, what document was that in? No, we, we managed to get it. I don't know how, how we got it, but we managed to get it in a huge production. And it was at the end of the year, how the board of directors values and bonuses their expert, uh, their expert uh, who worked for the company and her bonus was based upon her value. Once again, some people in this courtroom know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. Yeah, yeah. So her, her uh, recompense was based upon her value as a testifier. Yeah. Well, and then uh, one of the other experts that the defense had in this case is a well-known uh, seat back or seat expert. And... Uh, 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he had actually written some books uh, back when he was an engineer for GM about how strong seatbacks had been. And then uh, once he became a, a paid expert, uh, he had completely changed his opinions about that. The story changes a little bit. Some <laughs> people in the courtroom know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. And uh, um, those... I was able to cross-examine him and uh, the court disallowed his testimony on many of the important issues in the case. What? I'm sorry, I missed that, Jim. What was that? I still like him. He and I, yeah. we are good <laughs> friends when we go to vehicle inspections together and stuff like that. You know, and, and uh, one thing I should mention, that, um, you pointed out the fact that the lawn chair uh, meets the FMVSS standard uh, that they were so proud of. I I liked one of the things that you uh, were doing in trial is you stopped referring it to it as the you know federal motor vehicle safety standard, but as the lawn chair standard. Um, and I thought, you know, that's just an effective use of uh, making sure everybody understands that, you know, how minimum. And I also should mention your rebuttal. Um, I love the I love the argument where they talked about how they you know met or exceed these um, these standards and how you compared that to a a child coming home to their parent and saying uh, you know look I got a D plus you know I'm, I, I passed. This <laughs> semester the the kid comes home from college after the first semester and his mom asked him how are you doing in algebra or how are you doing in chemistry he said I'm passing she's. <laughs> What 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 are your grades in chemistry this this semester? I'm shooting for a solid D plus. <laughs> <laughs> That's passing, but who would brag about a D plus seat or a D plus grade? It's great. It's great. And and Steve, I loved um, you know, the the idea of the lawn chair test. I love when you can do that, when you can change, you know, call something what what makes sense to call it, but for your case, especially, especially when the, the defense will do it, it makes me think of when we, um, when we had a case, um, that there was this whole sort of garbled way that they put it, but, you know, we kept calling it a motion for a gag order because, right. um, in a case that we had, because that's, you know, that's what we were calling it because they wanted to seal a bunch of, of evidence in the case that we thought should be in the public record. And by the time we argued it, they were calling it the gag order. The court was calling it the the motion for a gag order. I just love in, in, in trial, the same thing when you can get them to start referring to stuff the way you're referring to it. Um, it's such a, it's such a win. I just love when that happens. <laughs> I'm glad you read my book. Yes. <laughs> you calls it that. Assigned reading. Assigned reading. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think is really important, uh, Steve and Yvonne, is allowing the jurors, many of whom are not going to want to sit on your case because they have pre, pre, they're judgmental. They're judgmental. So I always, in, in the very beginning of Vore Dyer, tell everyone, everyone in the, tell the jury, everyone in this courtroom has a bias. I have a bias. The judge has a bias. Every one of you has a bias. For example, if, if I come into this courtroom and find that this is a case against a registered nurse, 
I'd have to raise my hand and say, Judge, I can't sit on this case because my daughter is a registered nurse. I could not be fair. Another another thing you can I can I always say is if one of you was at home last night and a burglar broke into your home during the night and you come to court this morning and you find that this is a case about a burglar who broke into a house during the night, you'd have to raise your hand and tell the judge, I can't sit because of what happened to me and my family last yeah. night. So you have to get you have to get these things out. Get people talking. It's your favorite grandma or your favorite bartender. Get people talking and don't be judgmental. Let them talk. Don't yeah. guide them. Let them guide you. Yeah, absolutely. Not only get them talking, but then when you have uh, you know a potential juror who's very vocal, then you know ask around if any other people feel like this juror does, and sure. let them keep talking. But sure. yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I mean that's such a good lesson is that uh, you know the voir dire or, or jury selection should be about the jury talking, not about the lawyer talking. That's uh, that, that's so so important. It totally makes me think of that that question that people ask you where it's like, do you listen or do you wait for your turn to talk? Right. <laughs> you know, because exactly. I, I wait for my turn to talk. <laughs> um, and it's a good lesson for all of us to think about. Are you really yeah. listening or are you waiting for your turn to talk? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jim, let's talk. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Jim. No, I'm just going to tell you, Vaughn, that's kind of human nature, you know, and there. I know people and I catch myself a lot of times when we're in a conversation with someone and they're telling us something, you always want to kind of one up it <laughs> something more fascinating than what they're telling you. Right. Right. Yeah. Or just to relate, just to relate. But, but in doing that, you might not actually be listening to what somebody's saying. And right. it's not, it's not about you as I always you know, even though I make this podcast about me as much as possible, it's not about me. <laughs> well, it should be about you. Thank you. Thank it, you. Jim. It's right. It's it's about your dog. I mean, what it's about. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the bottom of mine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. Well, uh, Jim, let's talk a little bit about damages and 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 how you presented that case. I mean, we've talked about the uh the you know, the story that you told about how they came to this country, how they cho chose Burlington, Vermont. Uh, but just talk a little bit about how you presented, um, you know, the, the damages, the life care plan, uh, then, you know, the pain and suffering and those types of things when you're uh, both during, you know, jury selection, opening and then closing. Yeah. Uh, well, it kind of starts, uh, you know, with the cost of everything and the value of nothing. But uh, when we had two life care plans, you know, we said, we don't want the single recliner life care plan. We want the dual recliner. Then I say to the ladies and gentlemen, now we come to a more difficult decision. There's no blue book value on the non-economic damages, the damages to Jamila Heckel's life. And I go through every one of those. I fill out the verdict form while I'm talking. Then I get to a point and say, okay, this is what the life care plan is, 22 or 23 million. That's just what, what she requires in order to pay someone else to keep her alive. 
there's you ne- you don't even get to what her personal injury is worth. And so then how do we do that? Well, you know, a boxer goes two rounds and gets paid $15 million. An Olympic sprinter runs the 100, 100 meter dash and gets a million dollars. And, uh, you know, this and that. And so then you make an argument, something like this. Here in Vermont, and it's the exact words, here in Vermont, in a case like this, I have to ask you to include an amount in your verdict that is double what the life care plan is. So if the amount of the 26 million is double, that's 52. So then there's 26 and 52. It's a little over 80 million. Yeah. And you'll get a you'll get a uh, you'll get an objection saying, you know, you, that's not fair telling them what the law is. And I said, I haven't done that. I said, I'm telling them in a state like this, in a case like this in Vermont, I have to ask for twice the amount of the economic losses. And during the jury deliberations, we had about a three hour wait on that Friday evening where we thought they were thinking about maybe a defense verdict. And it turns out that there were three holdouts out of the 12 person jury who wanted to give $80 million, which was the amount of the life care plan plus double that for the non-economic damages that I asked for. And they compromised at the 43.5, Steve. Yeah, 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 0.5. Get it right. (laughs) That's right. Well, talk about that, Jim, because I understand you did have a chance to not only, uh, I mean, to talk with the uh, jurors afterwards. You want to talk about what they they told you? Yeah, the the foreman of the foreperson of the jury was was a a young woman who uh, really was very warm during during the uh, closing arguments. And she, she was elevated to be a juror. She was initially an alternate, but there was one very conservative guy who at the last minute begged off the jury and she replaced him. And she was chosen as the foreperson. And she told me all about the deliberations where they were uh, kind of sidelined by not by whether they should give twice the amount of the life care plan in addition to the cost of the life care plan. And I understand usually you don't see this in case like this, but did the defense actually threw out a number of their own at two and a half million is what they thought a verdict should be if they were going to give one? Well, the night before my closing argument, they came to me and wanted to try and settle the case. And they said that we have gone to the home office and we have asked for authority to settle for 450,000. And that's all the authority we will ever have. That's an, that's an all day number. And so I responded by saying we would take uh, 1.9 million. And they laughed at me and I said, you know where I'm staying, you know my hotel right along Lake Champlain. I said, you know how to get a hold of me? 
If that 1.9 is acceptable to you, let me know so we can tell the judge we don't need a closing argument in the morning. Silencio. Crickets. Right. They said nothing. And then uh, within another eight hours the next day, they got hit with the 43 point what, Steve? Point five. <laughs> Thank you, sir. That's why we have the professional fact checkers that we do on the show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the budget goes. That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um well, uh, well, Jim, I mean, this has been just a, a great talk and really, uh, I mean, just a fascinating story for a, a tremendously deserving family. My, my understanding is, is that you have uh, resolved this case. It's, it is now completely over. Is that right? We went um, back to Vermont uh, several months after the verdict was uh, given and while it was in front of the Vermont Supreme Court and uh, we settled the case. Well, the, uh, that is that is uh, great. I mean, congratulations on that, and and, um, and I know that went uh, well for the family. Is, is there anything else that um, you would like our listeners to know uh, about Hecko versus Johnson Controls that we haven't had a chance to talk about? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered uh, the important thing. The important thing goes from jury selection, choosing the words you want to use, community, and things like that that make people feel careful. They want to be careful not to allow dangerous products into their community. And uh, the way this community embraced the sound of music backstory was, was unbelievable. And I've gone back since then to see the family and they're really nice people uh, to be around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'll just remind everybody, we've been talking about the case of Hecko versus Johnson Controls, Inc., which was tried uh, in um, June of 2013 in Burlington, Vermont, and resulted in a 43, what, Yvonne? What was it? Oh, it's every 0.5, Steve. <laughs> 43.5 million dollar verdict. Um, Wait, hold on, hold on, Steve. Let me let me just let me just check with our fact checkers. Yes, 43.5. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, and our guest has been Jim Gilbert from the Gilbert Law Group. You can look up Jim at thegilbertlawgroup.com. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, this has been just fantastic. Okay, thanks, guys. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at 
truthtrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.